Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Pearls Almanac. This is part two of our conversation with Brett Chedzoy. If you haven't listened to part one, hop over to the episode before this and take a listen. For the rest of you, let's continue forward with this interview. Now, when we're talking about these details of like you were just saying, if you've got like a couple acres, you could do it by hand. I- I'm I'm wondering about the, the actual thinning process in terms of what you think about. Is it something where it's like pulling a Band-Aid off or do you think there's a succession process where you don't want to thin everything at once and you take a couple trees every year for three or four years until to help it transition as opposed to trying to do it so quickly? I think, Andy, that lighter, more frequent thinnings are more favorable from a civil pasture management objective than the way we typically do it in forestry, where we go in there with the heavy metal and we do one big thinning, one big harvest all at once, and then we come back again in 10 to 20 years and do it again. The, the reason I think that the lighter, more frequent thinnings are more favorable for civil pasturing is, well, I'll give you two or three examples. One is trees are very opportunistic. So if we create holes in the canopy by cutting out, weeding out some of the trees, the, the branches of those trees quickly fill in those gaps. So you're only creating a fairly short-term duration of higher sunlight levels. So going in there and thinning, say, more like on a five, three to five-year rotation versus a 10 to 15-year rotation is going to be able to sustain the higher sunlight down within a few feet of the ground, which is where it's really doing us the most good to grow forages. The other reason I like lighter, more frequent thinnings is trees don't like change any more than we do. So if you go in there and take too many trees out at once, it can shock them and create some other unintended consequences such as wind damage or what we call epicormic branching, which is not not a really a serious issue, especially in civil pasturing trees, but that's where latent buds in these otherwise high value trees start to sprout and you get like the porcupine looking tree and thirdly though i just i think that a a gradual transition is best but we have to balance all this with what is feasible and operable so the way i think it works best for many farms and many projects is that you initially work with forestry professionals, meaning foresters and loggers to go in there and get the bulk of it done in an initial big harvest. And this is your opportunity to capture the value of some of the trees that are being thinned out. But after that, we need to develop at least the basic skills of how to go in there and continually thin, uh, not again, necessarily every year, but perhaps every several years go in there and do light firewood harvests or light it can be just cutting the trees down leaving them on the ground or it can be girdling them and leaving them there standing habitat for insects and birds and other uh, forest critters in those trees that we do in these uh, following thinnings are the the opportunity cost of not putting those on a log truck and sending them to a point of sale is usually pretty low but it's it's not like an all in one fell swoop type of process 
So you had mentioned earlier about that you leave your stumps in the ground. I want to ask a little bit about that because I, I every time I look out in my my area uh, where the sheep are and I just see these like stumps sticking up, I'm like, I got to do something with them, but I don't know what. Uh, so I, I want to know a little bit more about your thought process and the benefits of doing it the way you are. Let me clarify and say, I'm not saying you couldn't take the stumps out, but I don't think you benefit or gain much by taking the stumps out. First of all, taking relatively fresh stumps out is you're going to do more harm than good. Uh, just a lot of soil disturbance, a lot of impact to the root systems, the remaining trees. Now, if you leave the stumps there for a few years, you could probably almost push them out with a compact tractor afterwards, at least the smaller stumps. And, and we often do that in our civil pastures some years down the road because we want to improve the access through there. But there's no, there's no important reason why we need to remove the stumps. The only situations where I've seen people remove stumps in their civil pastures is where they're trying to have like a really, like they are trying to do a really short-term conversion to like a really perfect looking civil pasture. And if that's, if that's what your objectives are, then maybe not taking the stumps out, but at least spending that extra money to cut them very low to the ground might be... Or grind them or whatever. Yep. And yeah. managing slash, by the way, sometimes it's, it's more cost effective to go in there after the fact and have something like a forestry mulching machine. There's many different types and models go in there and grind up the slash or take an excavator and consolidated into piles and windrows after the fact than to pay the loggers. But that's one of the other advantages of working with a professional forester is the foresters usually know how to take what your goal is and try to figure out a way of having the loggers do it quicker, better, faster, cheaper than paying somebody else after the fact to do it. Okay. That makes sense. And I, like I said, it's more of an aesthetics thing and there's a couple stumps and spots that I'm, I'm kind of running like a trying to eventually organize more of a key line design to uh, the placement. And there's a couple stumps just in like the worst possible spots. And uh, I've been trying to figure out what exactly to do with them, but I might just work around so you, them and leave so you them take out is. the stumps in those worst possible spots and let the rest of them stop bugging you. So yeah, yeah, probably uh, be the best. A idea. little trick I learned and, and I have not had a chance to experiment with this on our own farm, but they, the way they clear stumps there is they, when they cut off the living tree, they put a high phosphorus fertilizer on the stump. The stump absorbs that phosphorus and basically makes it a match head. So it also basically keeps the stump from re-sprouting. It poisons the tree and they go back usually a year later and, uh, take a shovel full of hot coals and dump it on that phosphorus rich stump. And it not only burns the stump down below the soil surface, but a lot of the roots as well. So oh, that's an interesting idea. I've never seen it done here, but I saw it work very successfully down in Argentina and I don't know why it wouldn't work here. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think all of this for me comes back to like, I think it's pretty straightforward when you have good conditions. And I know you've talked in the past about 
um, whether or not it's worth the investment of trying to make a site that has poor conditions, whether that's super low pH or unvaluable trees or bedrock or any of those things. If you do have those conditions and you're, you know, that this is the site you have and you can't move, what, what are your thoughts on what that process should look like? Yeah. And you may have seen this, Andy, before, but we developed a 10-question exercise some years ago on how to evaluate the site potential for civil pasturing. So we have this archived on our Forestry Extension webpage. So search for Cornell Forestry should get you there. And I think the title of the document is something like Site Evaluations for Civil Pastures, but it's it's really more of a thinking it through exercise, and we try to simplistically boil it down into 10 questions, but you could probably ask yourself half as many important questions or far more questions, but it's to look at things like inherent site quality, what's currently growing there, what wants to grow there, the ability to get water and fence and all those things out there because it's it's not just the trees and the forage you have to have these other must things like being able to keep the animals on site water in access uh, but i think site quality that is a very very important characteristic to look at and you keep talking about the example of pine and acidic loving plants like low bush blueberry or huckleberry. I, I worked for years as a consulting forester in southern New England, so I, I know very well what your So you're in my territory. Yeah, I know very well what your <laughs> forests look like or much, what much of your forests look like. And um, we have to know what these potential bottlenecks are before we just jump into this because if you have a if you're trying to take a woods and turn it into civil pasture but your soil pH is far below what would be considered an acceptable threshold for decent growth of cool season forages, then you have two choices. Either you do it and it fails because all you continue to grow there are plants that the animals don't really like. In other words, plants that don't have good feed value for grazing livestock, or you have to make investments in correct amending the soil and correcting that pH limitation. And that is most typically spreading lime or gypsum, which is a significant expense, but not a, I think an unsurmountable expense. So this, uh, going back to this example I gave earlier of a friend that did a 70 acre civil pasture harvest in his woods before we did the harvest there, I encouraged him to pull some soil samples, which he did. These soil samples literally only cost about $15 each. So I think he ended up breaking his 70 acres into two or three different kind of sites that he thought he might have different soil types and different um, pH readings. So, you know, for an investment of like less than $50, he was able to identify not only what the macronutrient levels were in there but more importantly the ph and he ended up deciding to spread lime in a portion of that 70 acres i don't know if it was half it, it wasn't just a few acres like he he brought several truckloads of lime in and spread i think he spread at a rate of just a ton an acre which is which is pretty modest 
but in the areas where he spread lime, the forages are definitely looking better here at the end of the second growing season. I was out there a couple weeks ago and we were looking at areas where he grazed the pigs through versus no pig impact. He, we were looking at areas where he put down lime versus no lime. We were also looking at areas where he had uh, done seeding with a different mix or a higher seeding rate. And I guess the takeaway I would share is that where he invested more, he got better results. I couldn't tell you that that was sure. in the long run what is ultimately going to be the most profitable, but we have to we have to know what these like okay i got to fix this or it's just not going to move forward conditions are and ph is definitely one of those so uh, and i don't know that a standard soil sample gets gives us great insight into soil ph because typically soil samples have instructions like okay you dig down you clear the sod or the organic matter at the surface and you dig down about 6 inches I don't know how forest soils might differ in that regard than what we would think of as like agricultural soils. So, uh, yeah, I think we typically have a shallow acidic layer at the soil surface where you have that undecomposed or partially decomposed duff layer, the, the old leaf layer. And I don't know if that carries down into the soil like say to a six inch rooting depth, but um, forest. So, I mean, one reason that soils are left to revert back to forest is because they weren't probably the best soils to begin with. And that said, you can think of woods that are growing on tremendously productive soils and sites. And you can think of forests that, you know, trees are doing fine there, but frankly, nothing else would. So, but, you know, spend a little bit of money up front and really know what you're walking into. Sure. Absolutely. So, uh, to kind of go in a different direction, I want to ask, you know, everyone that I know that's a farmer kind of has a weird pet project. <laughs> so mine is like honey locusts. Like I think they're an extremely underutilized tree and, um, I I'm very interested in utilizing the pods and the sugar in the pods. And I haven't seen a lot of research on it and it's something I'm playing with a little bit. So do you have any of those types of projects where you're just doing something that you're almost like, I'm almost, I don't want to say embarrassed, but like, it's just like something that's totally kind of off the wall in terms of agriculture. I'm smirking here because it, my reflexive response says, it seems like everything we do here is off the wall. And um, I'm, I, I know the neighbors drive by our farm and we have two public roads that run through our farm and, I'm definitely the oddball of the neighborhood. The one thing that we do, and it gets us in trouble a little bit, so it's not it's not really uh, directly tied to civil pasturing, but we we never park our herds. We're grazing about 500 contiguous acres here on the home farm, and we have about 100 cow-calf pairs. So we're a cow-calf operation. We have found, well, when, when our herd was even half that size, we found that if we left them in any one place for very long, they just made a tremendous amount of mud. One thing I would add about our farm, and it's why our farm's name is Angus Glen Farms, is that we have over a mile of border on the Watkins Glen State Park Gorge. So this is a very special 
pristine watershed that 2 million people come to our little county to visit every year. It's the second most visited park in New York after Niagara Falls. I do not want to be the farm that's putting nutrients in that watershed. And two miles downstream through this beautiful state park gorge is Seneca Lake, which is kind of the heart of our Finger Lakes wine region tourism. So no doubt about it, uh, farms are uh, farms can be part of the solution or part of the problem. Um, more and more often, they seem to be part of the problem in terms of dumping nutrients into sensitive watersheds. Uh, one of the ways, so when we were getting to that point where it was like, okay, are we going to grow beyond having a little tiny herd of cows that back about 17, 18 years ago, we were getting to the point where it was time to make some decisions about how we were going to fix this or spend huge amounts of money trying to build some sort of covered feeding structures on our farm. I had a friend from the Soil and Water Conservation District that came up and took a hard look and didn't sugarcoat anything. He said, you know, you could spend $100,000 trying to fix your barnyard and it's, it's not really going to solve the problem. And that that plus the realization that animals, uh, particularly ruminant animals that have built-in anaerobic digesters, if we're feeding them well and giving them uh, some shelter from severe winter weather, can otherwise do perfectly fine in the cold, we realized, okay, we don't need to keep our animals confined to a muddy barnyard all winter. So we are bale grazing, rotationally bale grazing around the farm. And in any given winter, we might utilize two thirds of the total paddocks or pasture base to rotationally graze round bales. And it, it's just something that's not really seen around here much with livestock farms and particularly beef farms. Consequently, we've been reported to the uh, sh sheriffs like animal control officer who's a good friend of mine knows very well what we're doing numerous times but people drive by and there's like oh you know look at those cows out there in the snow and they they're not in a barn and th that must be bad for them and uh, we have a couple roof shelters on the farm and the animals can always get access to some type of shelter it's it's usually more like our dense spruce areas that we call our living barns that we we don't necessarily manage those as civil pastures for forage production but we still thin the trees out and try to promote the growth of the of the best trees there those the cows can always have access to some type of shelter especially when the weather is bad and yet they stand out there and happily lay around their round bales chewing their cud and it, it's just given me a realization that the animals look at it a little differently than we do, but that's that's sure. that still requires though having healthy animals with good body condition, being able to recognize when they really might need better shelter than just because it's going to be a little bit cold outside. So, sure, and breed plays into that too. Definitely, breed. Um, you know, I think more more than breed, just uh, well. Certainly some breeds are better acclimated than others, but biotypes, I, I really think a, the answer to a lot of our problems in the livestock world is to eat your problems. Um, I, it might offend some people, but you know, trying to manage for the, the weakest few is 
putting every everybody at a disadvantage and if, if we have animals that are struggling or suffering, we do everything we can to help those animals, but we don't give that same level of care and attention to the whole group because the rest of the group doesn't need it. Um, we'll take yeah. those animals out and see if we can get them back on their feet or give them what they need. But long-term, they're not going to remain in our herd. Sure. I have Icelandics, uh, Icelandic sheep. And a big reason I got them is because of their genetics and the fact that they've been bred pretty much to, be able to do that. So like I, I, during the winter, I'll, you know, open up their, their house, which is portable so I can rotate the house because it's only a couple of them. And, um, they, they like get mad at me and I'm like, go in. <laughs> it's nighttime. It's like five degrees out and they just want to like hang outside. Yeah, they, they, they animals know, like, don't like wild. to be confined. I mean, we don't like to be confined. We all learned that last year. So we have, we can't judge what we think our animals needs based on what our needs are but we can't be ignorant of what our animals need either. I love sheep, by the way, because they're out there digging through the deepest of snow, trying to find that last little blade of green grass. They, they oh, don't, they don't want to touch that hay bale. If there's still some little clump of grass out there, they can find under the snow. They're looking for it. Drives me crazy when you buy a second cut and they're just looking at you like, you want me to eat this? <laughs> like, yes. You know how much money that cost? <laughs> Kills me. Hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Pearls Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. So I think my last real question for you is, uh, it's a doozy. So I we've talked a lot about like ecology and agriculture and how these things interplay with each other. In reality, there's like a third major component that I, I don't see addressed in anything other than lip service, which is the role that climate change plays in how we think about what our ecology looks like today, what it looks like in the future. And where do these food systems kind of integrate with what the future holds for us? Not just in terms of temperature, but water and all of the other things that come with it. You definitely saved the best for last, Andy. <laughs> I'll give you a, a quick comment, and then we can continue to discuss this. I, I really think the answer moving forward in how are we going to survive and sustainably and ethically meet our our needs, particularly around food, is to build more resiliency into the systems. And I, I really think civil pastures are one of the best examples out there of a resilient food production system in, in so much more than food. I think the ecosystem services and the fact that we're also producing 
forest products in our civil pastures. Uh, it's it's a healthy watershed. It's it's great habitat. It's it's this like high value edge habitat that many wildlife species really thrive in because again it's it's working with nature there's there's this uh the technical term is biomimicry but we're we're taking something that looks a lot like a naturally occurring ecosystem and and working with it that's to me gives it inherently a high degree of resilience to withstand okay not not just the ups and downs of markets which are a fact of life in the agricultural world but if uh civil pastures have saved our bacon numerous times in recent years on our our farm and i'll give you examples just from the last two years so in the summer 2020 we had a drought of historic proportions where we had three inches of rain from early May till late September. So that's just unheard of here. And if you looked on the drought monitor map, I know it was quite droughty out through much of New England and where you are too, but we were some little tiny pixel on the national drought monitor map that didn't even raise the eyebrows of the federal agencies. Consequently, it was like ignored. But uh, when you get three inches of rain in a four-month peak growing season, you really see the the impacts of it. The civil pastures not only allowed us to utilize land that we already own to sustain our livestock, but honestly, the forages look better in the civil pasture areas and grew better than they did out where the forages were burned up by early summer. Plus, we had this ability to go in there and do some of that light thinning, which let the animals uh, have some additional supplementation. So it wasn't necessarily what filled their bellies, but it gave them something to supplement the low quality hay that we were forced to feed them during parts of the summer. Uh, This summer, it's just the opposite. We are drowning in water. And I guess when you take the two years and average them, it's everything's normal, right? But, you know, from one extreme to the other, and yet now having a, this additional civil pasture acreage. So our, our farm originally was about half fields, half woods. And if we fenced out the woods and just said, okay, that's our woods. You know, we cut firewood there. We hunt deer there in the fall. We go out and hike in our woods. Um, that would be a big missed opportunity um, looking at the way I look at things today. But by using our woods, which is largely on the same sites and soils and slopes and is, is our fields. So in other words, there, there was really no reason why we couldn't develop this in the civil pasture, but by use, using a civil pasture, it allows us to keep the animals moving around a much larger grazing base and spread that impact out of when our soils are saturated and obviously we have to do that a little bit more carefully in the civil pastures for the reasons we talked about earlier about not damaging tree roots and impacting soils but it also um, gives us an ability to so one of the other challenges this summer was not just the rain but the humidity caused by that rain so we had some heat index days here and 
early August that were just brutal. And because the, we use rotational grazing, we always try to keep our civil pastures for those times of the year where we think they're going to be most strategically valuable. So like the dog days of summer is really what we're shooting for to have them in our prime civil pasture areas. And the animals, no doubt, enjoy being in those shaded civil pastures much more than they do suffering out in the hot, humid sunshine. So I got a question for you. I know I said that was my last one, but now I got to know how has, how has silvo pasture impacted uh, the hunt in terms of like how I uh, utilize, how much you could utilize your silvo pasture for that use? So this is going to be largely anecdotal. When we first started fencing, so this was a family dairy farm until the mid eighties and then was being cropped by a tenant farmer through much of the 90s. When we settled back here in the early 2000s, we started to fence in the old pastures again and the, the bits and pieces of the farm that weren't being leased to this other row crop farmer. And I was, I was hesitant to do so because I felt like putting the fences up was going to deter the, the wildlife, particularly the deer, which was something that was especially important to my, my dad, who enjoys deer hunting. And I didn't see any diminishment whatsoever of, in fact, I would say that the hunting continued to be as good as ever. And then as we slowly started developing more and more of the areas where we thought of as like kind of the deer habitat into civil pastures. I also felt that that was going to discourage deer from transitioning through the, through the farm and, you know, reduce the quality of our, our hunting experiences. And I would say it's been really just the opposite because what I've come to appreciate is that, pretty much all wildlife, they, they want two things. They want food and shelter. And I think civil pastures offer the best of both worlds for wildlife in that regard, that it's there's more places to hide in a civil pasture than there are out in the corn stubble field or, for that matter, the pasture. But there's also, unlike the woods, where there's typically just plants growing in the understory that the deer don't like to eat, there's, there's all sorts of yummy stuff there if it's good for our livestock it's good for the wildlife too so and i remember back to forestry school they used to always emphasize the importance of edge habitat that transition between field and forest so i think of civil pastures as an extensive edge habitat where you have again that win-win situation uh the animals have something to eat but they also have some place to hide or someplace to take refuge. So I, I think civil pastures, honestly, if we were calling civil pastures, like if we were selling it as a wildlife habitat enhancement, it, it might be a little bit more socially acceptable than saying, though, this is just, you know, for farmers to make more money. But um, the, the truth of the matter is that all the wildlife biologists that have come to visit our farm and have come to our wildlife or our civil pasture trainings, they, they totally acknowledge that civil pastures, they're not good for necessarily every wildlife species out there. Like maybe a true grassland obligate might be 
you might be reducing the quality of the habitat by planting trees into the grassland environment or a deep forest applicant might not like the fact that you created some disturbance and kind of changed the structure of the forest. But I think civil pastures probably do the greatest good for the greatest number of wildlife. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that that's also how the indigenous people managed a lot of this landscape to not necessarily be a civil pasture, but very similar to that that oak savanna uh, environment, essentially. Absolutely. Biome. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that's something that in a lot of our civil pasture talks, we tried to emphasize that, you know, for this maybe 100-year period or the better part of a century, at least, we had this paradigm of, like, keep animals out. And, and I think it was the right advice at the time, but historically, we have to look back a little further and realize that even though the indigenous cultures weren't necessarily herdsmen here in the Northeast, they, they wanted to do things that kept the, the game close to home. So having a deep, dark forest with nothing for the animals to eat underneath that, those mature canopies, that wasn't, that wasn't what kept the deer and the turkey and other game species close and accessible. So I think that having these relatively open savanna-like woodlands, uh, a civil pasture is, is a savanna-like ecosystem. I think that was much more um, widely maintained on the landscape by indigenous cultures than we realize historically, um, largely through the use of fire. I mean, fire, I think, in a lot of ways is a lot quicker than a lot of the practices we do today. Uh, especially given the the technology they were working with and not relying on fossil fuels and things like that. So, so it was a, an efficient way to do, you know, forest management. Fire would be a wonderful tool for managing our civil pastures, but it's, it's unfortunately something where we've just boxed ourselves out of using it here in much of the Northeast, uh, we, we've really lost our knowledge of fire science here in the Northeast, and we were usually working with such narrow windows of opportunity. Anyhow, there's still some of the national forests here in the Northeast, like the Finger Lakes National Forest in my backyard. They, they use fire, but it's, it's a very labor-intensive process for them. Some of the state forests here still use prescribed fire, and, and it works great for what their objectives are, but... Um, you look in the southeastern U.S. or western U.S. where fire is used uh, in a constructive, productive way versus just the wildfires that we hear about. That, by the way, prescribed burns would really be the the fix for wildfires. Yeah, and I think like climate change has played into how we can utilize it because we don't have those consistent seasons the way we might have a hundred years ago. Yeah, I know that. Our local national forest, I, I know the forestry and conservation people there quite well. And they, they really, you know, they, they could almost used, used to be they could almost set their clocks by when they would have the right conditions to do their prescribed burns around mid-March every year. And anymore, it could be anywhere from February to May when they get that week of just the right conditions to go out there and burn because it's it's much more complicated than just lighting fires on the ground absolutely um so brett for folks that are interested in hearing you talk more 
where would you recommend uh, folks go check out your work? Probably the easy way, Andy, is for people to do a internet search for Cornell Civil Pasture would get you to one of two main resource sites that we maintain. One is our forestry extension site, which I already mentioned. The website address is forestconnect.info. And we also have a civil pasture forum, which has a bit more complicated URL. That's civilpasture.ning.com. And that's meant to be more of a social network for people interested in civil pasturing, but we also use it as a repository to archive information. So if there was a good webinar or a good article on civil pasturing or um, you know something else that we, we need to put it there where people can find it in the future, it, it usually goes on that civilpasture.ning.com site. Those, those are kind of the two main places. And by the way, on the forestry extension page, you have to dig a little bit. It's under publications, and then there's a section on civil pasturing. We um, are looking forward to doing a two-day civil pasture tour in this area. It's most likely going to be next August. We've had to reschedule it twice for obvious reasons. And because I want to have everybody come and have a good time and feel comfortable sitting on tour buses as we go around to some great farms in this area. And it's not meant to be the like nitty gritty hands on of how to civil pasture, but really show folks that come and attend uh, some, some examples of civil pasturing on farms that are all doing it a little bit differently and kind of different contexts and the, the way to find out about that we we hope to advertise in some of the major grazing publications starting next spring but if you join that civil pasture forum we we know you're not going to sit there every evening and read through the content and post stuff but by being a member of that forum when we do something an event like that we can message all the forum members and that might be two or three times a year but it's it's a way of letting a, us letting you know that something important is coming up yeah that's great um do you have any social media handles or anything that for folks that want to either see your farm or just see civil pasture stuff through Cornell or anything like that? So my understanding is there's a civil pasture Facebook group out there. I don't find the hours in the day to do much with social media. Um, that's the downside of being a forester or, or, well, being a farmer. So Cornell gets the first 50 hours a week on the forestry side and the farm gets the next 50. So it doesn't leave a lot for Instagram or Facebook. And sure. We have a lot of stuff archived, though, in terms of webinars. There's been a lot of great things published on civil pasturing in the Northeast, and your audience isn't all tuning in from the Northeast, but um, there's there's a number of other institutions that are doing great work with civil pasturing. A couple that I would give a plug to is obviously University of Missouri, the uh, Center for Agroforestry, the uh, folks at Virginia Tech are doing some great work with civil pasturing. There's more and more universities that are trying to get a civil pasturing program going because they all recognize uh, we've worked with the folks at Michigan State here in recent years to get their own civil pasturing extension program up and 
going and Minnesota's done some work, Wisconsin's done some work, but University of Vermont is definitely doing some work. One of our colleagues, Joe Orifice, he's over at Yale and Joe's kind of been the third leg of the stool on the civil pasturing extension over the years. Um, you know, we have other people at Cornell, like Steve Gabriel, you had mentioned him earlier. Steve wrote a book, which I think is a, a very great starting point for people to kind of get the inspiration for civil pasturing from. Um, you know, it's just, to me, it's like there's so much opportunity out there that we we need to figure out how to better respond on in the world of extension because we're all doing this largely as a extracurricular activity and there's more and more farmers that are really figuring out how to do this well but their time is precious too and that's that's what that tour the, the goals of the tour are next year is to uh, create an opportunity for us all to get together all kind of see and talk about the same things one of the things to me that's really interesting about silvopasture is it's one of the only fields that I know of where like normal people that don't have a specialty and advanced degree can go and learn something new that no one else has figured out before because it's such a new field in terms of how we're thinking about growing food. I know that if, so I'm 52 now, Andy, and I know if I make it another, maybe, I mean, I'll farm to the day I die, but if that's, 30 more years or 40 more years, I'll probably feel at that point that I still know only a little tiny bit of what there is to know about civil pasture. And that's what keeps it fun for me. It's much like forestry. I mean, the, the book is far from written on knowing our forests and knowing how to best care for our forests. So in, in the, the same is true for farming, but you know, we're, we're getting more and more, um, black and white all the time with how to grow things like row crop or produce milk. But I think with civil pastures, grazing is always going to be the artful application of science. And for everything we learn, we'll realize there's so much more that we need to keep learning. Absolutely. Brett, this was really great. I appreciate your time. Andy, thank you for the opportunity to come in and share a little bit of this. I hope that others will step forward and become the new experts on civil passion but it's all something that we're going to learn by doing so we can watch webinars and read books and got to get your hands dirty got to get your hands dirty it's there's no substitute for experience mm-hmm.